Hi, my name's Jessamy Bagginal. I'm the Senior Medical Editor at The Lancet, and I'm delighted to be here with Professor Beats, who will be discussing his new paper on rectal cancer, watch and wait. Professor Beats, perhaps you could start off by just telling us why this particular trial is important and what the, what the background to the, to the study is. So the background of the study is that there were many smaller reports, um, a couple of reports that were a little larger, but, but they were all unicenters or, or single centers that suggested that the watch-and-wait policy in patients with a clinical complete response was something that was reasonably safe to do with a big quality-of-life advantage for the patient. But of course, this was regarded as as sort of experimental and and not proven to be safe to do. So the best thing would be to do a randomized trial. But we've asked patients if you have a complete response after chemo radiation, um, or we think you have a complete response, would you be willing to be randomized between surgery and watch and wait? And the majority of patients said that they would refuse randomization. That would they would rather make up their own choice uh, and not randomize. So we thought, how can we provide better evidence than the many reports? And of course, there are a couple of, of reviews of all the single reports, but we decided it was better from all the centers who practice this or as many as possible to put their data together, published or non-published, and see if we can come up with, with bigger numbers so it's it's not randomized but with the power of bigger numbers your your estimates of risk and benefit can be much better well we came up with the f the findings that are in the paper that actually the risk where a lot of people were afraid of is if any is very low so that is the main good finding that we want to report and that risk is is what future unsalvageable disease or uh, so, so there's two sorts of risk. The, the the first risk was what surgeons were generally critical or of or afraid of was that we were going to see um, horrible local recurrences that that could not be salvaged. Now, if you do meticulous follow-up, and that is one thing we we have to specify, if you do this, you have to follow up patients uh, more rigorously than usual. And then you catch the regrowth, as we call it, early. Uh, and usually it's, it's, it's amenable to salvage surgery. So th the risk of, of unresectable local currents is very low. The second risk is the, it's more difficult to estimate, is the risk for distant metastasis if you have a local regrowth. Uh, but by comparing it to other studies, we think that risk is, is also very low. So w without having proven it, with beyond doubt, I mean, we have good evidence that there is very little risk involved in watch and wait if you do it carefully. That's really interesting. And I, I just wanted to pick up on one of the points you made about complete clinical response, which, as I understand it, is quite a sort of contentious issue. And I was just wondering you know, wh whether you could explain what the definition for complete clinical response is and therefore, you know, wh what patients were included here and, and why that's a particular strength or, or potentially a weakness. A clinical complete response is when you 
with all the investigations, you think there is no residual tumor. So, and that means endoscopy, the clinical examination, the, the digital rectal exam, and the MRI. There's not a very strict definition, and the patients in the study, some of them are, are from 20 years ago when MRI was not universally applicable. So there is some heterogeneity here in the inclusion of patients. But usually we say if, if the tumor has vanished on endoscopy and there's nothing there on MRI, that is a clinical complete response. But we have to acknowledge that there is some variability in the in the definition of a clinical complete response. But despite this heterogeneity, that, that doesn't seem to play a, a big part. It is reflected in the fact that in the three largest institutions, there is a little difference in the incidence of regrowth. And that is probably because the inclusion criteria of a clinical complete response is a little different in these institutions. Right, and and that does raise some interesting questions, doesn't it, about the sort of surveillance and follow-up, because obviously a major strength of this study is that it provides us with sort of real-world data in the absence of a trial. But mm -hmm. also one of the weaknesses are that, you know, n there's no sort of consistent guidance on follow-up or surveillance, and, and so I'd, it'd be interesting to hear what your sort of views are on what's next for the clinical implications of, of a rectal watch-and-wage approach. So this, this consortium that um, through the International Watch and Wait uh, Registry thing, uh, we, we all realized that we had to, to sort of unify the criteria and, and the follow-up schedule. Um, and although initially 20 years ago it was not clear what exactly the, the definitions and the best follow-up schedule was, we are sort of growing to a consensus, um, and one of the aims of the consortium is to, to put forward a consensus on this based on the experience, and, and the consensus is going to be on the safe side, meaning uh, the follow-up schedule is going to be at least the first two years, um, very regular endoscopy and MRI. We don't think that Every center should do this. We think only centers with a high volume and, and with expertise in this should start doing this because we all experienced that we were building our own expertise and now we want to we, we wanna share that expertise with centers. So for safety reasons, we think it, sh it should be sort of centralized. In the future, I believe there is a an RCT that's sort of underway looking at this area. What do you think the sort of the next 10 years holds for this particular type of approach? Um, there are RCTs in this field, but this is for a different population group because the patients in this population group had a standard indication for chemo radiation for neoadjuvant therapy. But there is a, a group of patients with smaller tumors who happen to have a high response rate and they could benefit greatly from this approach. Um, but if they don't respond, they may they still need surgery and they have undergone chemoradiation, um, which was not indicated, and they will suffer from it. So for this group of patients, a randomized trial is underway, but you will see this other group of patients, like the ones in our registry, 
who got chemoradiation, the tumor seems to have disappeared, and they are left with the choice, should we resect it or should we not resect it? And I think the current data are enough to say you should at least discuss this option with the patient. Nothing is without risk. Surgery has some risks, and maybe the watch and wait approach also has as a couple of percentages of, of risk. So this is the balanced trade-off that, that the patient has to make with his doctor. And who, who stands to, to gain the most in terms of patients from this particular approach? So there's two groups of patients who benefit the most. First are the ones who have high risk, uh, operative risk, patients with comorbidity and, and, and older patients, frail patients. So maybe watch and wait is less of a risk in mm -hmm. patients who have a very good response than surgical patients. Um, the second group who would benefit the most is those with distal tumors who would require a rectal amputation and a definitive colostomy, mm -hmm. or patients with a very distal tumor where you could do a very low coloanal anastomosis with a high risk of a bad functional outcome. So these are patients who are to gain in the quality of life sector. They can decide if that's worth avoiding surgery or if they want to be sure and, and want no risk of recurrence at all, but then you have to accept the fact that you, you need major surgery. So this is another group. And I, I'm surprised to learn in, in how many patients actually, when you explain the numbers and the figures to them, actually choose the or prefer the watch and wait approach rather than the absolute certainty of oncological safety of a, of a rectal amputation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in the face of something like having a permanent stoma, I would imagine the pull is quite strong for many patients, which is a wonderful thing to be able to provide them with information, of potentially a, you know, another safe route. So just to kind of recap, what's the next steps for this now are, are to kind of come up with a more a clearly defined kind of which patients are suitable and, and what sorts of surveillance you should be performing on them? Now, I think we are very close in formulating uh, the best surveillance and that is, that is regularly endoscopy, MRI and clinical examination. This should be most intensified in the first two years because, because that is when the regrowths occur and whether you do it with a three-monthly or four-monthly schedule, um, I'm not sure that makes a difference, but it's it's going to be something like that. And thereafter, yeah, we do a six-monthly schedule. So a, a lot of people who practice this do something uh, something similar. So what's next is that maybe other patients with other tumors might want to explore organ preservation, like we said for the smaller tumors. So, so I think there's a whole wave of, of randomized and other trials coming out uh, for organ preservation because in our registry, uh, this benefits only a small group of patients and actually many more patients are interested in organ preservation. So what sorts of percentage of patients do you think might be eligible you know, in the next five years for this sort of approach? Well, if you say that, that only 20% of patients, 15 to 20% of the advanced patients, 
have a clinical complete response. Um, and then it also depends on the percentage of patients you give neoadjuvant therapy. So overall, this is this is maximum 10% of rectal cancer patients. Mm -hmm. Now, if you start giving more chemoradiation to smaller tumors, you will see many more complete responders and many more patients could benefit from this approach. So that is the main drive to do further trials to, to expand this to a larger group of patients in a safe way. And will the consortium continue to collect data on, on the patients that you already have? I mean, what's the, the longest follow-up for some of your patients was, was very long, I presume. Yes, the, the longest follow-up is, 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 is 10 years, um, especially the, the people from Sao Paulo. They've been doing this for a long time. We have been doing this since 2005. Uh, but, but we will be adding um, more patients, and we will keep the follow-up going on these patients. So we will learn more. Actually, we will have more patients. And there's also another group of patients with the near-complete responders. They are sometimes treated with organ preservation too and, and, and local excision, and we want to obtain more data on these. I, I think what was, what was good to see that, that all these doctors were willing to share their, their data because we all were feeling we had something valuable in our hands, but, but we had too little strength to to show that it was valuable. And now by adding this together, although it's non-randomized, I think it's the best data we have. So so I, I'm very grateful that, that all the people contributed uh, their data. Yeah, certainly it's an excellent example of sort of international collaboration to try and answer some really important questions. And I'm glad that Lancet is publishing it. <laughs> so are we. <laughs>